0: This week, the United States reached a grim milestone. COVID-19 deaths surpassed 100,000 in this country. And as the weeks have turned into months since the U.S. has faced this virus, the geographic areas and the communities it touches have begun to shift. The Washington Post analyzed case data and interviews with public health professionals in several states to find that the pandemic, which first struck in major cities, is now increasingly moving into the country's rural areas. There are significant challenges unique to rural America that make an outbreak there likely to be particularly deadly. And what's more, many of these counties are places where residents may be more likely to flout social distancing guidelines or believe the pandemic to be exaggerated by President Trump's political foes. The virus's effect on rural America may make things more politically complicated for the president, who has at times raised doubt around key public health measures like masks, business closures and social distancing. So in our current political climate, where health guidance seems to have become a heated partisan issue, how might a shift in which parts of the country are touched by the pandemic alter the actions of Trump or his supporters? Might the Trump campaign's political calculations change? And how might partisan divisiveness over public health measures evolve as the virus moves to previously unaffected parts of the country? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To understand more about the relationship between the president, partisanship, and public health guidelines, I talked to senior political reporter Aaron Blake later in the show. But first, I turn to Washington Post national reporter Abigail House Loner. Abigail, along with our colleague reporter Reese Tebow, wrote about the vulnerabilities many counties in rural America face as COVID-19 surges across parts of the country that were originally spared from this deadly virus. I talked to Abigail about the findings of her analysis. So the novel coronavirus first began really affecting urban communities in the United States and largely avoiding some rural areas. When did we see that begin to change?
1: So we started to see a shift away from kind of the first wave, meaning the first really heavy focal points for the virus, around mid-April. And that's when we saw it really start to take hold increasingly in places that I think, had maybe considered themselves more protected or immune until that point. So smaller cities, suburbs, and even small towns in the Midwest, in the South, uh, and other parts of the country, maybe where they don't have an international airport or where they don't have a ton of people who they thought could have been exposed to the virus through travel. That's when we really started to see or get hints of how this community spread was going to look throughout the rest of the country. Yet in terms of actual number of cases,
0: the most total cases are still in major cities like New York and Chicago and other other coastal cities, right? And overall, white people living in rural areas are not among the most affected populations.
1: Right. You still see, as far as absolute numbers, cases and deaths are still concentrated in more densely populated areas, which is no surprise. But what we have seen, which is alarming to public health officials, is is that there is a faster rate of spread and potential for what doctors call really serious outcomes, meaning death or ICU stays, in more rural areas, in that we're seeing places that are more sparsely populated than, say, a city like New York or Chicago or New Orleans are seeing a, a higher rate uh, of the virus. Even with smaller populations, they're seeing a higher proportion of people who are getting it and also who are dying. I should clarify, that's not across the board in rural areas, but we're seeing now pockets of that sort of emerging outbreaks or what one epidemiologist called a checkerboard. Tell me more about that checkerboard. What do trends look like in
0: how virus numbers are growing in these rural counties? Will many of the U.S.'s rural areas be hit at once, or is the virus expected to peak in different areas at different times?
1: According to the epidemiologists and physicians who we spoke to, it's really going to peak at different times in different places. And a lot of it is just a matter of chance. When that person shows up with the virus and transmits it to another person and it takes hold, whether that's someone in a nursing home or a patient arriving in a hospital or a doctor or a, a new worker at a factory... Doctors say it's not a question of whether all small towns in America will see the virus. It's just when, when it will come there. And then the bigger question that has epidemiologists and physicians alarmed is how bad will it be when it arrives? So we're seeing some indication of that in small towns where now there have been outbreaks, again, all on different timelines, where it'll show up in a place like Texas County, Oklahoma, which is in the Oklahoma Panhandle. It's really rural, not a lot of hospital beds, really far off from major hospitals and places where they have a lot of capacity for serious health conditions, where it erupted in a meatpacking plant and then spread really rapidly, much more rapidly than local health officials were prepared for and faster than they had tests to accommodate. What do we know about what has
0: caused these outbreaks in rural counties? Where are most cases spreading and what kinds of environments?
1: Often what we're seeing is an outbreak in a rural area will be tied to some location where you have a lot of people living or working very close together. So often that's meat packing plants or factories. These are often located in rural or low income areas. And you have people working very close together, also in a factory or meatpacking plant. Keep in mind, it's very noisy. So people have to shout at each other in order to communicate. The louder the volume of your voice, the more droplets you're expressing into the air. And so that is likely to carry the virus more than, say, if I'm talking to you in a whisper. And you have not a lot of great sanitation at least historically in those work environments and you have workers who often can't afford to take time off if they feel sick paid sick days are not a common thing in that industry and so you have a lot of different factors that conspire to make an outbreak if one takes hold spread very rapidly and uncontrolled another place that we're seeing as a source of outbreaks is prisons federal prisons state prisons are also institutions that tend to be located in very rural areas and might employ a lot of people from the area as prison guards or staff. And so you can have an outbreak in a prison that then very quickly spreads within the prison, where obviously there isn't much they can do in the way of social distancing of prisoners. And then it can be carried outside the prison by guards. Likewise, that's often how it might get into the prison to begin with. And then obviously nursing homes and long-term care facilities, you have those everywhere in the country, from urban areas to rural areas. The risk factors for those living in such facilities are going to be the same in that older people with frailer bodies, more vulnerable immune systems, possibly with other conditions are going to be more susceptible to the severe consequences of getting the virus, including death. You also have in these rural areas, especially concerning the workers at plants, a lot of people who are very low income, people at meatpacking plants and factories often do not make great wages. And a lot of the workers are from immigrant communities, that includes refugees. It also includes undocumented immigrants who might be living in cramped conditions as well outside of the factory. So in, d- in addition to working very closely in proximity with others, they're also then going home and living maybe in apartments with several other workers or in large families. And so that also is another opportunity to really quickly spread the virus.
0: And are there any additional distinct characteristics about the populations in rural America that leave them particularly vulnerable to either contracting COVID-19 or dying from COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so rural health in general is another really important factor contributing. To just the severity of these outbreaks when they hit rural areas. And that is that in general, pre COVID 19, folks in rural parts of the country tend to be less healthy on a broad scale than people in urban areas. You know, you tend to have higher rates of obesity, higher rates of, you know, cardiovascular diseases, of diabetes. And these have all been identified as pre existing conditions that can play a really serious role in a, a patient's likelihood of ending up in the ICU or dying of the disease. And then another thing is the quality of health care. Well before the coronavirus pandemic, physicians and public health officials in this country were worried about a real shortage of rural doctors and hospital beds. In Texas County, Oklahoma, the physician who's one of just a handful of physicians there was saying that they were sending serious patients out of the county to, to a faraway hospital simply because they didn't feel like they had the capacity there to treat really serious cases. And likewise, when I spoke to him, they had only recently just started to be able to test people. They didn't have enough tests before, and they were already in the midst of a serious outbreak when they started testing people. And even then, they didn't have the equipment to be able to run those tests and get those results on site they were actually having to send the test results with the national guard four hours away uh, to a university lab and then wait another four days in order to get the test results so that's just that's an illustration i think of pretty typical lack of access to quality health care, testing and the ability to treat severely ill patients are, you know, two big, quote, capacity issues that physicians say rural areas are having.
0: So you've just identified several serious vulnerabilities that rural communities face. What tools, if any, do we have as a nation to identify some of these vulnerabilities and then take steps to mitigate them?
1: Well, it's interesting. The CDC actually, almost 10 years ago, developed uh, a map really to equip public health officials for just this kind of situation. They came up with a social vulnerability index and that is they basically coded all the counties across the country based on levels of poverty, access to health care, access to health insurance and other factors. In large part, it's like a poverty index. For them, they came up with this in order to calculate and predict what areas were most susceptible to basically not being able to recover in case of disaster so they were figuring in case of a natural disaster like a hurricane or a flood or a major tornado or also a disease pandemic like we're seeing right now and so the CDC actually had this map available to them which laid out these are the counties these are the the parts of cities that are going to be really vulnerable in a situation like this but there isn't Any indication that the federal government actually put that to use and that we saw really no rollout of kind of extra resources from the federal government or even at the state level in general to these vulnerable locations ahead of time. And as I mentioned, in Texas County, Oklahoma, which ranks very high on the social vulnerability index in that an official could have looked at a map and said, oh, Texas County is going to have it rough. They were still waiting for tests to come in in order to be able to test residents, you know, when their outbreak was already in full swing.
0: Now, meanwhile, are there parts of rural America that have avoided this virus altogether, at least for now? And what are the reasons for that?
1: So far, yes, there are counties that have not reported a single case. There's not a lot of them. But they're all, I think, rural counties, of course, very sparsely populated, a few places along the you know, Mexican border, for example, and out west that have yet to report uh, a single case or obviously death. But all of the epidemiologists that I spoke to said that's really just a matter of chance, likely because they don't have a meatpacking plant there or there's just not enough people and they've been really lucky so far.
0: And what does your reporting show about the public health guidelines being exercised in many of these counties that have seen a rise in case numbers over the past few weeks? Are they floundering social distance guidelines or how are they reacting? How are they acting in response to this virus?
1: Well, it's interesting. In some places where these outbreaks are occurring, their states are otherwise in lockdown. But in a lot of places across the country right now, states are starting to reopen, especially in Republican-led states are, or where governors are closely aligned with the president and they're eager to get the economy working again. And so you have states that are reopening even as these more recent outbreaks are still flaring up in rural areas. We've also seen in some of these rural counties that are seeing outbreaks now, you have residents, generally supporters of the president, who say that they're not concerned about the virus. There are a lot of conspiracy theories that are still very prevalent. People saying, well, it's not going to affect me, or it's it's all blown out of proportion by the media or by health officials. There was one protester in Michigan who actually told my colleague that she doesn't trust science. You know, she trusts the president, but she doesn't trust science, and that the scientists were lying. And so you you have a lot of misconceptions still very prevalent in some areas, including in areas where people are seeing outbreaks. And another thing to consider is that many of the president's supporters in rural areas tend to be white. And some of the more vulnerable populations that we're seeing, even in rural outbreaks, are often minorities. So we'll see poor Black people in one state will have generally less access to health care, say, than some of their white counterparts in some areas. Or likewise, you have in immigrant communities, particularly undocumented immigrant communities, you might see barriers to health care created by language, not being able to understand public health messaging, and also people afraid to go to the hospital, afraid of Say immigration agents, and also poor minorities worried about not being able to pay hospital bills. And so, even in some rural areas, you might have people, the predominantly immigrant or minority workers at a factory, who are very concerned about getting the disease but don't feel like they have a choice other than to show up to work because they are, again, essential workers and they need the income. And then you might have Other members of the community, say more conservative members of the community who are predominantly white, who still also, even with this outbreak in their midst, consider it overblown uh, by the media.
0: So as this virus hits more rural parts of the country, fears and misconception around its prevalence and lethality can make tackling the virus more difficult. At times, President Trump has contributed to misconceptions about the virus and cast doubt about the need for public health measures to contain it. Senior political reporter Aaron Blake and I talked about the political divides around the nation's public health response and how they could become more complicated as the political demography of who the virus touches begins to change. I asked him what the president's overall message has been over the past few weeks in regards to how seriously Americans should be taking public health guidelines.
2: Well, I think there's been a a pretty demonstrable shift. The president has never come out and said that people should disregard what the federal guidelines are or anything like that. But we're seeing this creep towards his initial kind of more skeptical tone towards the severity of the crisis. We're seeing the president cast doubt on the necessity of masks, which are part of the CDC guidelines. We're seeing him push states to press forward with reopenings that in many cases don't f- follow the guidelines for the time period in which those states can push to reopen. So I'd say that the totality of it is a, a, an increasing tension between the president and health officials, which we've certainly seen glimpses of before, but seems to be increasingly pronounced as he grows more impatient to reopen the economy.
0: Yeah, there seem to be really, and you touched on this, basically three categories of public health response that Trump and his supporters have cast doubt about. One is the need for social distancing and business closures. The second is the trustworthiness and accuracy of the death toll numbers from this virus. And the third seems to be, of course, the need to wear a mask for protection. So let's start with social distancing. What do we know about how Trump's base has responded to distancing and the closure of businesses?
2: Well, if you look at the polling of these issues, it has become evident that Republicans are significantly less likely to stay home. They are significantly less likely to want to abide by some of these social distancing guidelines. Social distancing is a difficult thing to measure because there's lots of people. And how do you even measure that? If you look at mobility, people actually traveling outside their homes, going various distances, there is a much more significant decline in areas that are blue in counties that didn't vote for President Trump than there is in counties that did vote for Trump. Now, part of this could be because those counties are more rural, People just need to go out more because jobs require it or there's traveling further distances. But this is the percentage of distance that people are traveling relative to what they usually do. And I think that better than anything kind of characterizes the difference in approaches between supporters of the president and people who who don't support him.
0: How much has Trump's messaging ultimately affected the behavior of his base and his supporters and how they've reacted to some of these restrictions?
2: I think with Trump, it's always a matter of reading between the lines. He'll often put something out there where he may not be directly advocating something, but he's sending a a pretty clear message to supporters about how he feels about something. I think where this really began was when protests in states like Michigan uh, began. And the president sent out a series of tweets that urged people to, in all caps, Uh, liberate, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia. It wasn't necessarily an explicit call to action, but it was something that fed into this idea that these restrictions are too punitive, they're draconian, and people shouldn't just sit idly by and let their states be so restrictive with their freedoms. I think ever since then, the message has been similarly subtle and maybe less direct. But the the sum of it all is that the message has been pretty clear that the president is is wary of being overly restrictive. He's, he's actually cast out in many cases on what some of these Democratic governors are doing. And I think that anybody who's watching what he says will take away a message that he doesn't entirely agree with keeping uh, everything in lockdown for a long time.
0: Now, let's move on to the very sad subject of death toll numbers in this country. We've now passed the 100,000 deaths mark. A truly devastating number. First, have we seen any response from Trump to this new somber milestone?
2: We actually saw the first real response to this. We've we've known that this was coming for a few days now. The president on Thursday morning tweeted saying, we have just reached a very sad milestone with the coronavirus pandemic deaths reaching 100,000. He offers sympathy and love and says, God be with you. The president has been criticized for going golfing this weekend with that milestone looming in the background. He's certainly engaged in a lot of other pursuits, especially on Twitter when it comes to raising questions about what the Obama administration did in the Russia investigation. He's floated conspiracy theories about the TV host host Joe Scarborough. The president has always, I think, struggled to demonstrate empathy. We did a a study of his coronavirus briefings a while ago and it showed that he spent multitudes more time attacking people and claiming credit rather than focusing on the actual toll of, of the coronavirus outbreak. But it seems clear that this tweet was in response to some of that criticism that he's he's gotten over the last several days here.
0: In addition to that tweet, Trump also last week did order flags to be flown at half-staff to commemorate these 100,000 deaths. But yet his schedule this week contains no special commemoration, no moment of silence, no collective sharing of grief. And that's juxtaposed against some skepticism raised among his supporters around death toll numbers, which have somehow taken on a surprisingly partisan bent. Where do these doubts come from? What's driving that?
2: Yeah, this is something that I think has been carried mostly by his supporters, especially the opinion hosts on Fox News like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson. They've pointed to various theories about how the death toll could be inflated. The president has actually said at one point that he believes the numbers are accurate, but he's also toyed with this in in ways like he has other things. And I think it's important to note that however these theories exist, the evidence is very strong that we actually have a significant undercount when it comes to the death toll. Because if you look at the number of people who normally die in this period of time from all causes, the death toll that we have attributed to coronavirus doesn't begin to account for the quote unquote excess deaths that we're seeing at this point.
0: Has the White House... At any point suggested that this death toll number is evidence of an effective containment of the virus?
2: Yeah, I think from the beginning the president has has certainly sought to downplay the the danger of this as it's progressed he has set various targets for the potential death toll. At one point he said it would be fifty to sixty thousand and suggested that was an improvement he later upped that to sixty five to seventy to ninety thousand obviously now we're over a hundred thousand here when that one hundred thousand estimate first was was released, that model came out and it was 100,000 to 240,000, that was hailed as being a potential success. The president very clearly said that if that was going to be the death toll, basically anywhere under 200, 240,000, that the, the efforts to combat the virus would have been a success. So he's been very focused On those death tolls, in many cases, setting different goalposts, but very mindful of how that toll is going to reflect upon him and his government.
0: Okay, let's move on to what's become one of the most contentious pieces of individual response to this pandemic, and that's the act of wearing a mask. How has wearing a face mask become so politically divisive?
2: This has really become a a significant flashpoint in, in this debate. I think maybe because it's the most readily apparent symbol of how seriously people are taking the outbreak. In many ways, it's become kind of a referendum, a politicized referendum on whether people think this is serious or how much they want to return to business as normal. Polling shows that Republicans are significantly less likely to wear masks. About half say that they haven't ever worn a mask, according to a Gallup poll. The numbers are significantly lower among Democrats. Only 18% say that they've never worn a mask. So there's a significant divide here. And I think as we've seen over the course of recent weeks, the president himself has sought to, to stoke this culture war to some degree. He last week ridiculed Joe Biden for how he appeared in his mask at a Memorial Day uh, ceremony in Delaware. He, on Thursday morning, was retweeting a a piece from a conservative outlet that suggested that wearing a mask was uh, akin to being controlled by the government or even slavery. He didn't endorse it, but he said that it was raising some interesting points. I think it's it's evident that he's raising the idea that this is something that that maybe isn't necessary or that is is a symbol of some kind of an overzealous response from health officials.
0: And yet in the past few days, we've seen pushback from some Republican leaders. They've worn masks and suggested others should, too. This is, is generally rare for Republicans to defect from Trump publicly. Why has this moment been
2: different? On Friday, when North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, uh, a Republican, basically made the argument that this should not be a political statement. This should not be a political thing to wear a mask that protects you and your fellow citizens. Uh, he said he would he would urge people not to take part in this senseless dividing line and says that people should use empathy and understanding. He said that people who are wearing masks may be having somebody at home who's dealing with a serious health condition and they can't get sick. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has also offered a similar message saying that this should not be part of a political statement. And, and by the way, I should add, two of the most successful governors when it comes to their coronavirus response, at least as measured by approval ratings, are these two Republican governors, Doug Burgum from North Dakota and Mike DeWine of Ohio. So there is an undercurrent, there is a a, a sense and a recognition from some of these Republicans that this issue is being politicized unnecessarily and that that could be dangerous. Thus far, we have not seen a similar message from President Trump. And I think that it's one that we haven't really seen from health officials who I think are probably understandably wary about speaking out in a way that would seem to be contradicting or at least questioning what the president has said about masks.
0: Okay, now that we've assessed how the president has influenced discourse around some of these public health guidelines, here's where I'm going with this. If more people in parts of the country loyal to Trump become affected by the virus and more people therefore feel a real need to be protected... Where does that leave Trump's campaign messaging on some of the public health measures that he's most vocally cast doubt on?
2: If you look at the president's numbers on the coronavirus response, they really mirror in a lot of ways his overall approval rating. We've seen his approval rating be very constant throughout his presidency in the low 40s, sometimes in the mid 40s, sometimes in the high 30s. That's where he's at on the coronavirus outbreak right now. I think what's interesting is in that some of these states where where we may see them decide the 2020 election, there are very popular Democratic governors in them. We're talking, of course, about Michigan, talking about Pennsylvania. Wisconsin also has a Democratic governor who isn't doing quite as well, but is still more popular than Trump when it comes to his coronavirus response. And then one other thing that I think is really notable here is how the president has interacted with the governor of Michigan Gretchen Whitmer. At one point, he told Vice President Pence not to take her call because she had been too critical. Last week, he was talking about withholding funding because the state was moving forward with sending out absentee ballot applications to all voters. You wonder how that's going to be perceived in such a vital state to have the president saying these things in the midst of an outbreak. I'm not sure that we've seen in the numbers that it's necessarily moved the needle at all, but I would guarantee you that come September, October, November. Those kinds of comments will be played in TV ads running in Michigan and will be used as as a political argument against the president's reelection.
0: It might things change, thinking about the political geography of all of this, if the virus hits certain areas quite hard before the November election.
2: Yeah, I think what we've seen is certainly this has had uh, a significant impact on on some of the key states, Uh, Michigan being chief among them. There's a very serious situation in Detroit. We've seen it to some degree in Florida, although it seems to be flattening the curve and and reducing its hospitalizations these days. This this is a situation, and, and Dr. Fauci has talked about this, where the reopenings can create outbreaks, unpredictable outbreaks in areas that we haven't seen them before. And increasingly, the numbers suggest this is spreading to more rural areas. It's not so much just a New York City thing anymore. It's heading towards the middle of the country to some degree. And so I think that to this point, it has clearly been more of a blue state issue than anything, especially New York and that kind of Uh, northeastern part of the country. But this is something that other parts of the country are going to have to deal with in some measure in ways that they aren't right now.
0: So then as this virus spreads to rural areas, what do we know about the Trump team's political calculations in weighing at least a functional economy in some of these areas versus the potential human toll of loosening these protections, as Fauci alluded to?
2: I think the president has made very clear from the beginning of this that he's very worried about the economy. When the stock market was declining early on, he was very consumed with that, even as we we weren't sure about the extent of the outbreak, but it was starting to increase and people were offering much more significant warnings about it than the president was. I think that what, what continues to strike me is that the president seems to have internalized the idea that a bad economy means he will struggle to win reelection. This was his calling card, the one thing he really wanted to run on. And suddenly he has seen that go away, as we've seen the significant downturn during the coronavirus outbreak. But at the same time, the polls show that people don't hold him responsible for that downturn. Around half of people, or even more, still approve of his handling of the economy, yet there seems to be this calculation that he needs to do something to rescue the economy before the election. And he's made that pretty clear with his public comments.
0: Aaron, my final question to you. If the virus cases and death counts continue to worsen in parts of rural America, how might that affect the political divide that has emerged on these contentious subjects, things like mask wearing and, and stay at home orders?
2: This is a situation in which Republicans and Democrats, uh, both citizens and office holders, are clearly approaching this very differently. Right now, it may be that we'll never see an outbreak like the one we saw in New York City, but we are seeing evidence that certain areas of the country – Areas like South Dakota, where they had a meatpacking plant outbreak, can see very significant outbreaks. And to the extent that that certain politicians are pushing for reopening, they are really inviting the idea that they've they've created a situation in which these outbreaks could could happen, whether they ultimately happen or not.
0: All right, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. The Washington Post is doing everything we can to bring you coverage of the coronavirus crisis, this administration, and so much more. If you're able, one way to help support our work and get unlimited access to every scoop and story is to become a subscriber. Can He Do That listeners get a special subscription offer at WashingtonPost.com slash C-H-D-T offer. That's WashingtonPost.com slash C-H-D-T, like Can He Do That offer. Thanks so much for your support. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art by Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.